Today I'm talking to Sean Norris, who is an activist and a journalist. Um, she's written for The Guardian and for The New Statesman, amongst other publications. How are you doing, Sean? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, no worries at all. Got a lot to talk about because you are caught up in the coronavirus in your reporting. There's a lot of work that you've done based around how women are affected by the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk to me about your experience with these issues. What is it that you've been trying to write about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, first of all, when the coronavirus outbreak started in China, there was definite evidence that it was having an impact on women's experiences of domestic violence. Um, and obviously, you know, women were experiencing domestic violence before the coronavirus crisis. This didn't just start in, in March 2020. You know, we had a really severe issues around the cuts to domestic violence support services, which meant that women had lost a lot of the safety net that had existed in the past few decades or that had been built up in the past few decades. Um, and we also, you know, the, the very commonly understood statistic that two women a week are killed by a partner or former partner. So, we, you know, this issue was very live before the coronavirus outbreak. But of course, what happened with the, the outbreak was when lockdown came in, this, the very small amount of safety net that did exist for women was cut off very, very quickly. So um, we had statistics where organisations like Refuge were finding that the number of calls to their services had absolutely rocketed. Um, because whereas perhaps in a normal situation, women were able to leave the house, they were able to get out of the way of their partner, they were able to, you know, go and just walk even just walking around during the day in order not to be in the same space as a, an abusive partner it was a way to to kind of I don't want to say avoid the violence because that would imply victim blaming but just not be in the same space and and obviously as soon as lockdown happened those releases those safety valves were very quickly taken away so it was really important when we were reporting on this not to suggest that the virus was somehow pushing the violence or that the, the virus was responsible for the virus because obviously any domestic abuse is the responsibility of the abuser and the abuser alone but it did create a condition where men or abusive men were able to exert more control over their partners because they could control whether their partner was able to leave the house they could you know control the family dynamic and that and a lot of um women that I've spoken to were saying that the virus had become a kind of trigger point for their partners or their abusers. So, you know, one woman I spoke to, her, her partner was very dismissive of her fears about the virus and was constantly, you know, undermining her attempts to keep the family safe. So you could kind of see how, while this abuse was happening beforehand, the virus created a context where, where men could exert this control. But it's not just domestic abuse. Um, the coronavirus crisis has really exposed that the existing inequalities or the existing gender inequalities that we had in society. So there was some research that came out this week, um, today's the 9th of June, so yeah, it would have come out on the 8th of June, that found that black and minority ethnic women were disproportionately impacted by the economic crisis caused by the virus. And again, this is something we're seeing across all groups of women um, women are more likely to be furloughed, they're more likely to have lost their jobs, they're very likely to be on the front line. 83% of care workers are women. 
Um, and obviously care workers are incredibly vulnerable to the virus and its impact. And women are more likely to be in the, the sort of low paid work, which means they can't access things like statutory sick pay, which puts more pressure on them to go back into work. So there's all sorts of ways beyond domestic abuse that the coronavirus crisis has really intensified issues of gender inequality. And sorry, I've gone on and on and on. I've been talking for ages, but um, my, my main fear is, is what happens next. Like, what do we do? How do we make sure that this isn't a permanent regression? How do we make sure that when we come out the other side of this crisis, that gender inequality isn't something that's just allowed to fester and worsen? Because over the last 10 years, you know, we've seen, if you look at global rankings, the UK has dropped um, six places, I think, in terms of its gender equality rankings. So we're already in a weakened position before the crisis hit in terms of how we think about men and women's equality. And we can't let this 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 sort of pattern or this train continue because that will be a disaster. It'll be a disaster for women and it'll be a disaster for for men as well and for families. What's the metric for the equality scale there? How do they measure the level of equality in a country? I don't know how they measure it. I can tell you the name of the scale. Um, this is just one of those statistics that I picked up recently and made a note of, but I didn't do a lot of digging. The World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report. So in 2010, the UK was ranked number 15 in the world. And now we're 21st in the world. So that's quite a big drop in such a small amount of time, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it really is. Something I thought that you wrote about that was really interesting to me is how the language surrounding coronavirus is gender imbalanced. I thought the fact that it's all very macho and that the government talks about it as if we're at war and it's all Mm. about fighting and, you know, going into battle and that kind of thing. What do you think would be different in the way the government was approaching things if they didn't use the term war? I mean, I think the sort of war, battle, fight language is something that we do see a lot in terms of the way we talk about illness. So it's not, and and there's always, I mean, I do some charity copywriting and there's always this endless debate. Do we fight cancer? Is, Is it a battle? And then there's a debate, well, when we're talking about research, it's about fighting, but when it's a personal experience... It's not about fighting because if what happens if you lose the fight? You know, what happens if you die? And so, so there is this kind of tradition of, of talking about illnesses in terms of fights and battles. But I think particularly what we've seen with this, the language in the UK is exacerbated by the fact that we have this all-male leadership in terms of the fight against the coronavirus. So we've got the, the war cabinet of, of six male politicians and... And it, and it does kind of create this really adversarial setup straight away, you know, this, that we're at war, that this, is, that this is like a blitzkrieg style attack on the virus. And again, in some ways, it's just irritating because why do we have to have this kind of machismo battle, battle language? But also, I just don't think it's very constructive anyway, because it's, it's, it, it, you, you can't have a war with a virus. You have to come together you have to work as a community you have to make sure that we're all in it together and taking actions to protect one another and look after one another and reach out across these divides rather than drawing these battle lines so but I I mean I think it's very much in keeping with kind of the leadership's 
style of politics, <laughs> you know, this sort of bombastic, flag-waving jingoism. And I think that the kind of the war language and the constant referring back to how this this is like the Second World War and stuff like that, it, it's, it's fed into this narrative of British exceptionalism, which was one of the problems at the beginning, that we weren't going to be that we were going to be okay and we weren't going to be like the rest of Europe. Um, whereas perhaps if we'd had a more, I don't, I don't quite know what the word is, like maybe a rational or a sort of, yeah, less, less mm. warlike posturing at the beginning, perhaps we'd be in a better position now. But I'm not an epidemiologist, so but mm. I do think we've, we've got that sort of British exceptionalism narrative that's been quite problematic throughout words like hero and people being mm. brave and all that kind of thing you can see how that would encourage people to make quite brash decisions to appear that they were being brave or things like that and they're not yeah. they're not thinking rationally and using logic it's more of a i need to do this to prove that i'm a hero or that i'm brave and i think that's probably a pretty negative effect on people's attitude towards it and also i just think you know there is something difficult about talking about NHS staff as heroes because yes what they're doing is incredible and the the dedication and the commitment of all of the frontline workers is is humbling but I do worry that this positioning people who are going to work and doing their jobs as heroes is a way to sort of avoid attention on things like what making sure they're paid fairly and given the correct equipment and you know like you don't have to pay your heroes right but you do have to mm. pay doctors and nurses and and so I think yeah again this kind of rhetoric I do understand why people want to use the term heroes because it's seen as that tribute it's seen as that payment of respect but when when government ministers start using it is when I start to feel a bit uneasy I think that's the in the same way that the clap for the NHS thing got politicised so quickly mm. and that's why they had to cancel it is because it went from honouring people to distracting people from making any real change in the way they were treated. Yeah. And that's um, sadly had to come to an end. With your work writing about issues affecting women, you obviously are very close to this. You're talking to people very often about their personal experiences. In the last few years, we've had Me Too and Epstein and Weinstein. And all of these stories are like front page news. It's mm. really in everyone's collective consciousness. From my personal view, it does seem like the fact that these stories are reaching everyone means that there is some change happening. It means like a new standard is being set and people are being held accountable men mm. are being held accountable do you feel working on the front line of these issues do you feel that that is true or do you feel that it's just being listened to a bit more now I think it's it's a mixture of both I mean when the Weinstein revelations broke in under 2017 uh, it just it felt huge I, I mean it was it was like every day was something else and something else and something else. And, and I remember, I remember exactly where I was when Michael Fallon resigned from the cabinet. I was in a pub in Kennington in London. And I was like, this is it. This is, this is, they're all going to have to resign. We're, we're going to see a total change. Like this, this, we can't go back from here. Um, I, I had this kind of vision that the, like every MP that had been accused of sexual impropriety was going to resign and we were going to have by-elections with all female shortlists and you know it was just going to be yeah. this the women 
revolution was was upon us. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. And and I think I think it's it's been it's it's been quite interesting to see what's happened since those moments. Because number one, you can't put these stories back in their box. People know people can't ignore anymore what power dynamics look like in terms of misogyny and what sexual harassment looks like and how it manifests itself and and what that means for women's equality across society whether you're a farm worker or working in an Amazon warehouse or you're Ashley Judd you know with working in Hollywood like we we have a much better understanding because of these revelations than we did beforehand I mean obviously I've been part of the feminist movement for 13 15 years now so these were stories that we all told each other but the kind of wider public acknowledgement and understanding was still stalled. The the problem that I, I think has happened since is is we haven't seen the concrete change that was needed. So we we've we've shared the stories, we've talked a lot, and now we need to see real um real action. And and I, I always worry a little bit with with me too that that we that we're constantly putting demands on women to expose the most painful experiences of their lives to to stand up and speak and to say this happened to me this happened to me this happened to me and then we all go this is terrible how can we not have noticed this before but that's that's the end so I think mm. you know there's still a lot of work to do and I don't know what the answer is I don't know what the concrete action is, although I would start by, you know, proper funding for domestic abuse support services and proper funding for rape crisis services. You know, that would be like a base level thing that we could get better. Um, but we do need to, I do think we need to get on to the sort of beyond for speaking and into the action phase. Um, and I, I think it's, when, when Weinstein went to prison, I mean, that was just this huge sense of relief, really, because we'd, we'd had cases where the men hadn't been found guilty of criminal offences or where the, the the offences were so far in the past that there was no... In the States, you've got statute of limitations, obviously, or, or here that there was no way of kind of getting convictions. Mm. Um, so for, to see him go to jail was, you know, it, it was like, well, we were right. Women were right to speak up. and We were right that this these actions were criminal and nobody can deny that now. Everybody knows that what he did was against the law. So that was a really significant step. I think if he'd been found not guilty, we would have gone back to square one in some ways. But yeah, I just, I mean, I'm, I, I feel really, really proud of, and of, this, of this sense of sisterhood that came out of me too. There was this incredible sense of solidarity and care and, and as I say, once you get to this point, you can't put those stories back in the box. You can't, you can't hide it. You can't pretend it doesn't happen anymore. But we have to make sure that we have structures in place now so that when women speak up, they get the support they need and they get the justice that they deserve. You said earlier that you've been involved with the feminist movement for 15 years now. Yeah. And I wanted to take things so right long. back to the start of your career and ask you how you first got into writing. I guess like there's this sort of the feminist movement aspect of it and the writing and, and they, they do massively overlap because 
writing about women's issues and also LGBT issues is generally what I do. I wrote an article about buses once, but even that had a gendered <laughs> an- angle. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think I always wanted to be a writer. When Even when I was a kid, I was always like trying to write novels um, as a kid, you know, in, in notebooks. And, um, and when I was at university, I went to university in London. I live in Bristol now. I mean, I grew up in Bristol and I, I came back after university. Um, so I sort of wanted to do, I did a bit of music journalism. I did a sort of very, very brief fling with fashion journalism. Um, but what I was always really interested in was was injustice. And I think, you know, I grew up in a LGBT family. So I was very aware from a really early age of, of what injustice meant and, and what it looked like when it was effective in terms of prejudice and discrimination and how that impacted on people's lives because I was living it in my family. Were you personally the victim of any discrimination? Um, Well, I grew up in a gay family under Section 28, so there was a kind of wider experience of discrimination. You know, you're sort of state-sanctioned living in what they called a fake family at that time. So Section 28 was the law that prohibited the promotion of homosexual relationships and, as I said, fake families. Um, That was repealed in 2003. And also, you know, I was was at secondary school in the 90s, so, you know, gay was like the biggest insult going. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know, I've never experienced direct homophobia, no. Um, but, But that's because I didn't, people at my school didn't know that I was in a gay family so but um so yeah I I think you know it was just I was always interested in these issues of injustice and and then I kind of started writing a blog a feminist blog um in 2007 when when everybody was starting to blog and and I just kind of it went from there really I I was in I I was co-running um, a feminist network, so a kind of activist group in Bristol. And we had about 1,500 members and we were at our biggest. And we organised Reclaim the Night marches and we, you know, organised pro-choice protests and um, did research projects. And every month we'd have a discussion group where we'd talk about issues um, such as street harassment or women in prison or refugee rights and abortion rights. So I was constantly in these conversations and and being very aware of what was happening to women, both locally, nationally and globally. And yeah, and I just kept writing about it. And eventually I started pitching to newspapers and magazines and it it went from there. But it was really those kind of early early experiences, both of of growing up under Section 28 in 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 a gay family and also being part of this big network of feminist women and some men talking about the issues and and organizing protests and direct actions that that kind of fueled the writing and now I just do the writing you know as your career has started from writing blogs you must have seen the way that liking and sharing and all that kind of thing has completely changed the way people's work gets out there in terms of journalism clickbait and sensationalized headlines get more attention than some really important journalism and I was wondering if you 
have to consider something like that? How do you keep your integrity and not end up writing something just to get loads of attention from it? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I mean, there are subjects that you know are going to be going to get more attention when you write about them. So for a while, if you wrote something about online abuse, you knew that that was going to get read, that like everybody was going to read that because it was a kind of very... It was a subject that lots and lots of people were discovering and they were interested in and they wanted and and if you wrote I mean some of the early pieces I wrote were were actually thinking of me too were related to kind of celebrity sexual abuse or domestic violence claims or allegations this was like you know way way before me too um and it, obviously if you you put a celebrity's name in a headline more people are going to read it um and it and it is it's frustrating in some ways because you 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 realise that some of the issues that I care most about, like the impact of coronavirus on asylum seekers, for example, they, those articles don't seem to get as as read as much as as I would like them to. But mm. fundamentally, like as a journalist and as a writer, what I'm interested in is is telling telling women's stories and telling the stories of of women who uh, might not have a platform or, or might not be getting heard in in the way that they should be um and and I think as long as you kind of as long as that's the thing that guides me and the thing that I really care about then those are the stories I'm going to write and that that's what I'm interested in and I, I don't really want to write about things that I'm not interested in and that is the luxury of being a freelancer is I just decide I can pick and choose the subjects that I write about. Um, so yeah, I don't think I've ever really had a conflict between writing something really clickbaity or sensational versus something that is a bit more left field or less populist. Yeah. Because I've always just gone like, oh, this is interesting. This isn't getting enough attention. I'm going to write about this one. You are the founder and the director of the Bristol Women's Literature Festival. When did you start that and what did the first one look like? Well, technically I started it in 2012, but the first programme was in 2013. But, you know, it takes a while to organise. But, yeah, so going back to the beginning, um, so when I was co-running the Bristol Feminist Network, which I mentioned earlier, we did a lot of research into the representation of women in the media and we looked at two areas in particular, which was objectification and absence, and how in, women were absent from the, the, the stage at Glast, like the pyramid stage at Glastonbury was very male dominated, or you know the best Oscar directors. There's only ever been one woman, and by that point, I don't think there had been any. Um, and 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 also like pride, like book literature prize lists and literature festival lineups were incredibly male dominated. And I ended up doing a panel discussion with Dr. Sue Tate and Badisha about the, this sort of absence of women on our cultural stage. We're mostly cultural, but we did talk a bit about political as well. Um, and there was a literature festival happening the same weekend as we were doing this event. And this, the lineup, was, it was just so male. I mean, they had a panel called The Future of the World, and it was all men. I mean, I think it was all white men but I need to check, but it was definitely all men. 
as if like women don't have a stake in the future of the world. I mean, I don't think it would happen now. This was 2011. Um, people do seem to be a bit more aware of the whole manal issue now. But yeah, I just remember at the time being like, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why don't women get to decide what the future is? Um, and anyway, so I was, we did this panel, me, Badisha and Dr. Tate, and Badisha said, you should start a women's literature festival. And I said, okay. And that's how it started. Didn't take much uh, persuasion. No, I sometimes think most of my career has been based on Adisha suggesting I do things and me going, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I had no idea what I was doing, really. I mean, I'd organised one-off events before and I'd organised, as I said, Reclaim the Night marches and various protests. But I just thought, okay, I'll do this. And I made a list of all the writers that I really liked and I emailed a lot of them and some of them said no, but most of them said yes. And, and then we did it and it happened. And then I did it again in 2015. And then I did it again in 2018. And yeah, it's always, it's gotten bigger and bigger each time. And I think what was interesting, because there was a three-year gap between the 2015 and the 2018 one, which was because I was doing other stuff. Um, and when we came back in 2018, there was just this huge enthusiasm and complete like sellout events. I think all but one of the events sold out. It snowed. People trudged through town in the snow to come and see these women speak. And it made me really realise that there is this desire, there is this hunger still, even now, to have these conversations about women's place in society, about women's literature, about women's history of writing, about feminism, about journalism. You know, there was just this real excitement about the whole thing. So, I mean, obviously it was really disappointing that we couldn't do it this year, but it wouldn't be until 2022 if we did. What would you like the 2022 one to look like? Who would you like to feature? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going to be published in the next couple of years? Do you focus on new and upcoming um, literature then? Um, we, we try and do a real balance so that we have debut writers alongside mid-career and very established writers. And that's always worked really well because you get this real sense of warmth and community and people sharing their different experiences at these different stages of their career and their lives. Um, so, yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing that we, we're really focused on is is making sure that we have diverse lineups and not, you know, not just thinking, oh, well, we've got to make sure we have one person from a black or minority ethnic background, like actually completely mainstreaming diversity and, and making sure that it's, you know, it, it, it's really central to everything we do. And, you know, that, that counts for, you know, black and minority ethnic um, representation, but also LGBT representation as well. So it's, it's really key to us that we, if we're going to celebrate women's writing, if we're going to say that we care about marginalised voices and under-representation, then that goes across the board. It can't just be a, a group of women who all look, look and sound the same. It's time for you to give us your hidden gem. This could be something from the world that you work in, but it doesn't have to be. And it's just something or someone or a project that you think everyone should go and check out. Um, okay, so in terms of feminist activism, 
my hidden gems would have to be um, organisations like Safety for Sisters, Savile Black Sisters and the Latin American Women's Service. And these are incredibly incredible organisations that work with some of the most marginalised women in our communities. So women who are seeking asylum, um, women from migrant populations or women from minority ethnic groups who are experiencing gender-based violence. And I, I just feel like these organisations are so grassroots, they're so underfunded in so many ways, but they're doing the really, really hard work of supporting women through really, really difficult circumstances. And throughout the coronavirus crisis, they've been on the front line, really, in helping some of the most forgotten groups of women in, in the government and wider response. And in terms of literature, my hidden gem would probably be Mina Kandasamy, and not just because I finished her new book yesterday, but <laughs> she's this really fantastic um, writer who we had at the festival in 2018, and she's written three novels... Um, Exquisite Cadavers, which is the most recent one, and When I Hit You in 2018, and The Gypsy Goddess. And she's just, she's, she's just incredibly brilliant writer. She's, she's really political. She's really interesting in the way that she approaches form and style and language and, and the subjects that she writes about, you know, around violence and political violence, but also interpersonal violence. And how do we create narratives? How do we write lives? How do we think about fiction and memoir? And she's just, every time I read her, I feel like I just want to sit down and have lots and lots of cups of tea with her and, and extract all of her incredible knowledge from her brain. <laughs> she's, she's just such a rich person to, to read and speak to. Your work is spread over various publications and websites and everything like that. But mm. I'm sure you share everything from your social media. So how can we follow you on there? And where's the best place to read all your work? Yeah, so I'm at Shanishka on Twitter, which is just like a nickname. But once I was on the radio and they thought my surname was Ushka, which was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, it's Norris. <laughs> so yeah, at Shanishka. I do Twitter. I, I mean, I, I don't really do Instagram. I've got a private Instagram account because it's got family pictures and stuff on it. But um, so yeah, Twitter's the best place. And I've also got a website that I made called shanvariter.com. And that's got samples of various pieces of work and, and links to other bits and bobs. So yeah, that's where I am. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me, Sean. Thank you. It's been really good. I love talking about feminism and myself. <laughs> so.